Cowabunga, dude! In honor of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem in theaters this week, what is the weirdest thing you would eat on a pizza? I'm Katie Rich, and I don't like cantaloupe, but I feel like I would like it on pizza, mostly because I like pineapple pizza, and I feel like all fruit should be on the table. And I realize cantaloupe is not, like, the weirdest thing, like, life could provide you, but I don't like cantaloupe. I'm going to put it out there. Give me a cantaloupe pizza. Fair enough. Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and pepperoni pizza, red chili flakes, and marshmallow fluff. I have eaten it multiple times, and I would eat it again, unlike something like anchovies. Multiple times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. What what pepperoni you, like, made pe- this? What spicy pepperoni pizza is missing is marshmallow fluff. Mm. Just like a little sweet to like tap it off. I mean, it's similar to the cantaloupe, just less healthy. I'm a for fan you. of the salty sweet. I just I had the overwhelming marshmallow fluff. But you know what? I mean, you get to apply the marshmallow fluff, so you could do like a white pizza style where it's in like little dollops. You could spread it evenly, so it's like a cover. It's really up to you. You know, they uh. I was talking about this earlier. The Alamo Draft House has a TMNT uh, menu with pickle pizza that looks delicious to me, and I cannot convince my children to go for. Um, so yeah, I really, I really shouldn't be judging. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain, and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 439. It is the week of Wednesday, August 2nd. That is the day that in 1945, the crew of the USS Indianapolis were found in the Philippine Sea three and a half days after the ship had been sunk and 316 people were alive. 1945, it's a year we've uh, been uh, seeing on screen lately. Oh, yeah, yeah. The movies. Last week's podcast, I know you weren't here and we talked about Barbie, but we'll address that later. Uh, we like all we went all the way back to 1775 and the establishing of the post office. <laughs> That's right. So I was like, yeah. And go ahead. I, I, I listened to the episode and I don't usually listen to listen to the ones that I'm actually on. But just listening to Patches be like, did we almost kill the post office? And just starting a rumor right there. It was, uh, it was quite a thing to listen to without being able to talk back. Well, I looked it up and a lot of the stuff that under the Trump presidency got like uh, was weakening the post office has been uh, part parts of it have been quietly reversed by the Biden administration. But we don't need to have that argument until <laughs> next November. So I don't want to get into it now. Personally, I would enjoy leaving presidential politics off this podcast as long as possible. So uh, let's see. Let's see how we can do. <laughs> uh, people might have noticed it's just me and Dave this week. Mm-hmm. Although, have there ever been two other hosts? Are we the only hosts who've ever hosted the show? Who can say? Yeah, no, it's always been a Katie and Dave podcast. I don't even know who mm-hmm. else would be expecting. No, absolutely nobody else would be talking over each other or throwing out wild theories about well, the history of the post office. I can tell you one thing about this week. Zero people typing while other people are talking. <laughs> I mean, I can try to fill the gaps because it might just sound weirdly quiet if I don't uh, try to clickety-clack my way through this thing. I can get but... out my old-fashioned keyboard. We could really hear it. But why do that to everybody? It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a voice-only ASMR podcast this week. It's a dignified, responsible podcast of two people who will try not to interrupt each other, but no. Two people where this is their side gig. They're on other successful podcasts. We're just here to have a good time (laughs) and talk about movies. (laughs) God damn it. And I'm back from vacation and I have seen nothing since Barbie and Oppenheimer, but that's not going to stop me from weighing in on pop culture. (laughs) 
Uh, I hear that we have an email to spare the people from Marvel Snap, which I have started playing again, but I don't get to talk about this week. Yay! Yeah, that's correct. We do not have any iTunes reviews. So just a reminder, I was talking about this with some other friends who run podcasts this weekend. Uh, We don't really know how to manipulate uh, the algorithm anymore, but it does help us feed into people who are getting things recommended through the iTunes related charts. So if you could go there, leave us a five star review, say whatever you want. We'll read it on the show. And thank you very much for that. But you could also email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. Like this person here. The subject of this email is a normal conversation about sound of freedom. They start that, hello. That implies that implies that many conversations are normal, which from what I understand is maybe true. Yeah. The email starts, hello, I know it's a bad subject line. <laughs> I've reviewed your show on iTunes before, five stars. You are all thoughtful, engaged critics, and cultural thinkers. I feel like across the movie podcasts I listen to, there's been a lack of thoughtful discussion about the whole Sound of Freedom run. Now that the movie's hopefully dying down, I wanted to write in to prompt a discussion. I get it. I'm pretty sure I agree with all of you on the politics of the movie. It's not our... It's not as artistic or fun to discuss as Barbenheimer, The Bear, or the other big releases of the last month. On the other hand, Sound of Freedom's pretty fraudulent ticket total is going to end the year high the overall box end the year high on the overall box office list. I doubt it'll be corrected down or asterisks like the steroid era, ba- era baseball record. <laughs> Studios will try to repeat its scheme. Not sure if they'll succeed, but we've seen the billboard charts get ruined by similar methods. If you've been thinking about the ramifications of that movie's success as much as I have, you probably have some interesting takes. I would certainly like to hear your thoughts on the financial side of that movie, even if it's just a few sentences at the start of the show. Thanks in advance. B. Lee K. What do you know about Sound of Freedom, Katie? I know that Jim Caviezel's in it. Mm-hmm. And I know that some people think that is connected to QAnon, but people who are people object to that. But it is about child trafficking, which is something that QAnon people are very invested in. It is. And Mr. I- Caviezel himself. Uh, believes in those things. They believe you could uh, get, what is it, andochrome from children and put off aging by... Oh! See, I didn't know it went that far. Not that I don't think child trafficking is a thing that exists, but I think that it is used as a way for people to cast out on other members of society. Anyway, um, I know it's made a ton of money and people think it's taken away from the Mission Impossible box office, which is a shame. That movie's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, that might be about the extent of it, honestly. I don't know that much more. I mean, all, I all of that is true. Uh, the reason it's been doing so well with um, uh, against something like Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 at, at the box office um, is because at the end of this movie, uh, Jim Caviezel comes on screen and while the credits are rolling, says that you can donate essentially to a charity that will then pay it forward to let people see this movie for free. And really? Yes. And that charity uh, has been uh, funded with things like churches, uh, you know, other non conservative leading nonprofits, uh, some what I would call uh, bad faith child trafficking, uh, you know, uh, NGOs. And uh, that is why sometimes uh, if you look on social media or maybe at your local theater, there is occasionally times where it looks like the movie's sold out, but when you go, nobody's there. Uh, those tickets what? have been bought through like a, a situation where they funneled it through this uh, specific charity that has been created. So people give money to the charity, and the charity then buys, like, tickets. buys tickets on Fandango? And you could redeem those tickets uh, through the charity's website 
and go see the movie for free. It's a pay it forward campaign. I'm trying to be as nice as possible to it because this is what our emailer is asking about. Is this sort of thing going to be gamed previously because it makes Sound of Freedom look really good uh, box office wise? I've heard anecdotes. It has certainly, so like this movie has gotten a lot of attention from people like me who might have otherwise flown entirely under my radar because of its box office performance. Like it's a marketing tactic that's working. Exactly. It has no advertising. There aren't any Sound of Freedom billboards. I've never seen a commercial, but you know, thanks to subscription services and they're like high level tiers, I don't see a lot of commercials. So I don't know if there are commercials out there or not, but like zero marketing, opening above a mission in or being able to hold a uh, box office above Mission Impossible after a couple of weeks. Uh, it is definitely going to end high up on the box office totals uh, for the end of the year, but it is because of this uh, controversial system of... Uh, I would... I made a tweet calling it astroturfing. I've seen people calling it money laundering. Um, <laughs> and the uh, people who respond to those tweets, uh, some of them are very intense about why this is a serious movie about child sex trafficking that everybody should see. Um, and some people are just like anecdotally, it's playing in my town and people are actually seeing it. All these things mm -hmm. you're hearing about empty theaters is actually false. I went to a jazz festival um, Ooh, a little too you. a little too late i thought i was going to get there at a normal time but i kind of uh, went to like the end of it uh in a park here um by denver it's actually going to meet somebody and then i got there so late i'm just like i just kind of wasted that walk so i turned around and went back but um oh happy birthday kenny miles um sorry i wasn't there uh but right by the food trucks was a guy who just had like a, a plywood board and he had printed out the Sound of Freedom poster and then 100% Rotten Tomatoes audience score. And that huh. was it. He was just, he was being advertising for him, he, for the movie. Like, he, he personally was out there being like, I want you to go see this movie so badly. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like, you know, stop child trafficking or whatever. It was just poster, 100% yeah. Rotten Tomatoes score, old dude holding up cardboard. So hey, that works, you know, it got your attention. I well, yeah, it got my attention after I had already been like, I'm not going to see this movie. Uh, I read <laughs> a couple of reviews by people forced to review it. I think the most popular one to pass around is the Rolling Stone uh, review that I think calls it like a, a fever dream for your conservative QAnon uncle. Uh, oh, boy. So it doesn't sound like a great movie. It definitely doesn't sound like a movie that I'd want to see. Uh, but there are some positive things about it. Doing great in that box office, uh, shot in Central America, uh, Latin director, I am for all these things. It was, you know, um, they say that it was rejected from streaming services, but what that means is the streaming services didn't bid to have it stream. Uh, it wasn't like rejected. Nobody, it, was, it's not, it wasn't censored. Yeah, nobody, nobody paid for it. I imagine well, it's funded by Angel Studios, which has like its own streaming platform also. Right. Like that's like a pretty large faith based studio, isn't it? Yeah. Angel Studios sort of saved it. Um, but there's, there's there was a bunch of oh, they didn't make it. So like they picked it up. Right. Uh, okay. That's my that's my understanding. And uh, I, and again, might be wrong about this, but to, to the question of is this going to be replicated? I can't imagine somebody won't try. But it is a sort of apparatus that uh, you see more often in different parts of the culture. So it's like, I don't think 
Warner Brothers is going to have like a pay it forward Blue Beetle campaign, even though that might actually help the movie without Wait, any what's... stars. To oh, I see. It. I see. There is no pay it forward Blue Beetle campaign, but you're not imagining they would. Okay. Sorry. Right, because I... for a second, you're saying that did exist. I think like big companies like AMPTP companies, I don't think they're going to do it. They're convinced about how to work within this actual model, but maybe some smaller niche studios uh, realizing right now also that there's. Uh, up until Bar- Barbenheimer weekend, and we'll talk about it more at the end of this episode, but there's we aren't far enough out of the pandemic to really have counter-programming. Like, we're struggling mm-hmm. to keep kids' things in theaters, uh, and there's maybe one big release every week, maybe one big release every couple of weeks. That's going together with the strike. I could see another uh, film made for a niche audience trying to uh, pull the, the ticket uh, shuffle. Uh, also, I don't no, for a fact, I'm not uh, specifically uh, familiar with, you know, post Paramount st- Supreme Court decision, vertical, horizontal integration, like <laughs> if they're actually breaking any laws like this might just be a no, legitimate that would way have to mean that like AMC that like they were owned by AMC. Right, right. Uh, but I like AMC is definitely playing it. Uh, I had a tweet today. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. I tweeted uh, the sound of freedom like super fanboys are really weird to me because uh, the head CEO of AMC theaters who's super actor on Twitter after his stocks became stonks back on Reddit way back when um, was tweeting that like, uh, you know, the last two weekends have been the best weekends AMC theaters has had their entire opening. Uh, Like people are coming out to see the movies. All the movies are super profitable. And somebody responded with, like, he's an AMC stonks holder, so he's used we. He's like, could you look into why our theaters are disrespecting Sound of Freedom? And he was like, AC not working, movie starting late, sometimes movie has to be restarted. And oh, that sounds just like going to a movie theater. Exactly. That's, that's, <laughs> it's a, they're a niche enough audience, they haven't actually gone to a movie theater. Uh, that's something yeah. that we have all experienced and are still constantly experiencing, especially if it's an AMC chain. Uh, they let that shit happen all the time, it's, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, like uh, movies are going to be movies, but the fact that they aren't parading around with their huge W and they're still looking at ways to poke at the system and being like, "We're being wronged by the system, man! You are oh, not. Yeah. You're not being wronged by the system. You are doing so I, well for what you are." Yeah, I mean, this is me as like an eternal optimist, maybe, but like the huge goal is to get people to want to go to movie theaters and in the habit of going to movie theaters. So like as much as Sound of Freedom is not, I haven't seen it, I don't want to weigh in on a movie that I haven't seen. Like, I guess I haven't sought out for a reason, but I find it hard not to be in favor of something that like gets traffic into your local AMC and like offers people something different, which is what Barbie and Oppenheimer did too. Like there is a renewed interest in movie going that I can't object to. So as of right now, it is uh, number 13 of the highest domestic box office grocers uh, for this year. It is past Vaxx, it is past Elemental, it is past Mission Impossible, Puss in Boots, Scream, The Flash, Megan. Puss in Boots opened last year. You're, you're, you're in the, you gotta get, go to in-year releases. Oh, I mean, oh, fair, fair enough. Uh, but uh, I, I'm just on the calendar grosses. That's, sure, that's yeah. our our mistake anyway it's, it's, it's gonna overtake creed 3 probably it is going to overtake creed 3 uh i wouldn't be surprised if it overtook transformers i think it's gonna hold in between transformers and indiana jones and the dial of destiny but we'll see 
also one of the side effects of this strike happening and people starting to pull release schedules is theaters are going to keep anything that has legs in for as long as they can. And Sound of Freedom has like very, very small drop offs week to week, which is why it's been able to go strong since July 4th. So hopefully that answers some of your questions, uh, (laughs) B. Lee K. That's at least our perspective of it. Um, I haven't seen the movie, so I'm hesitant to say that uh, it is bad, uh, but I also uh, wouldn't want to see this movie if it just, they they told me what it was about. Uh, yeah. It doesn't sound like a fun time at the movies. Uh, chi- child Neither does Oppenheimer, to be fair. That's true. And maybe it wasn't, <laughs> but maybe that was the point. I saw Bo's Afraid this year, and that was like a bad time at the movies. It's supposed to be a bad time at the movies, so maybe I'm being too harsh. But definitely in the Barbenheimer Dial of Destiny Turtles month, I'm not going to make room for uh, Sound of Freedom. I apologize. Uh, while I'm looking at Box Office Mojo as a sidebar, Little Mermaid, like getting close to 300 million domestic. I totally missed that. That movie made, made far more money than I thought it did. Yeah, it just didn't get picked up internationally, which is something we're yeah. going to have to uh, keep an eye out on. Um, uh, there's something i discovered while writing the marvel book the mcubook.com pre-order comes out in october um which is like we these huge box office franchises that did you know a bit over a billion dollars globally a lot of them were boosted by china who's not letting that product in anymore yeah. so yeah. uh it's a it's, there's a smaller piece of the pie uh for uh, certain types of movies that you know in 2009, China would be like, yeah, sure, come on in. And now they're, they're, they're sort of being a bit more uh, picky and choosy about what they're going to show. A la not yeah. Barbie. Yeah. So, uh, but that's Barbie. Wait, seems wait, to be China, China isn't allowing Barbie in? Correct. Because uh, the map that she has. No, it's pro. The, the map is pro Chinese, though. That's why Vietnam wouldn't let it in. Oh, but I mean. That's isn't... why Ted Cruz is saying it's Chinese propaganda. Oh, well, never mind. Oh, wait. Barbie movie, the nine dash line <laughs> and China's. OK, cool. I mischaracterize what I country we're chi- talking about. I think Barbie is thriving in China. Actually. It is. It is apparently crossed the twenty five million dollar threshold. Chinese the- feminists flock to see Barbie, says the Financial Times. Who Love it. Love it. All right. Uh, so take what Katie said. That's the factual thing. Otherwise, <laughs> the sound of freedom thing yes, I said. Factual. The fact that China is not showing a lot of Hollywood blockbusters is 100 percent true. Yeah. Also, The Little Mermaid has still not crossed what Aladdin did domestically. So, yeah, I can see why that uh, feels like a disappointment. Yeah. I also didn't see that one. But when I catch up I with it, it. Uh, that's what I will decide if it, uh, you know. You're going to was... watch the live action Aladdin? Uh, a Little Mermaid. A Little bet. Mermaid. Like, oh, when things... like, why are you catching up with the live action Aladdin? When things the are on... ship assailed. When things are on Disney Plus, uh, I occasionally dip into them and see what's up because otherwise Disney Plus would just be the Bluey app, and uh, I don't, uh, I don't is... need that exclusivity. In my house, it is the Bluey app. That might be how I see Ant Man and the Wasp, uh, Quantumania, which I have not seen. Ooh, lots of goo in that movie. Anyway, thank yeah, you for see, the. That doesn't make me want to see it. At all. <laughs> no, no, goo's great. Comic book goo is fantastic. Uh, if you want us to talk about things that we are talking about, if you want to uh, send us a review of the show internationally or just whatever, you can email us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com and we'll uh, read it on the show or quietly forward it to everybody if you ask us not to read it on the show. That's also a perfectly fine thing. We're a, Anytime we're, you want to send book recommendations. 
and and book recommendations. Uh, but speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Well, as I said, I got back from vacation and still haven't seen a movie in theater since Barbie and Oppenheimer. But I did get back from vacation and was like, you know what? I've been completely brain dead for a week. I want to watch something. And I finally have the Criterion channel. Um, and looking on their list of what was leaving the service in July, it was July 29th or whatever. Um, I saw Alice doesn't live here anymore. I had Martin Scorsese on the brain because I had been rereading Killers of the Flower Moon. That movie is coming out this fall. And that was a Scorsese I hadn't seen. There's a lot of Scorsese I haven't seen. We might talk about this, Dave, but I have like the man's made a lot of movies. I have a lot of blind <laughs> spots. I don't feel too bad about it. Um, but that felt like a big one. And it so it came very early in his career. And I didn't really realize until after I watched it that he was basically a, a, like a gun for hire on this job. Like Ellen Burstyn had the script. I think this came out right after The Exorcist. So she was in a pretty good spot in her career. And she was like, who's a young guy I can get to make this movie? And someone was like, go watch Mean Streets, which was like his big breakout movie, which mm-hmm. I haven't seen. Don't know anything about Mean Streets. But except that I know that it's a guy movie and this is very much not. Um, and so it's this script that Ellen Burstyn got from a writer whose name I'm going to look up. <laughs> I don't remember it off the top of my head unless you do, Dave. Uh Writer's uh, name is Robert, Robert Getchell. Getchell? I think Getchell. Getchell. Otherwise, um, I would just be saying, God bless you, whenever you said his name. <laughs> Getchell. Um, and it's it's linked to like the women's pictures of the 40s is very obvious from the very beginning of this movie. And Dave, I believe you, your partner watched this movie and you didn't watch the whole thing. So you might have missed the very beginning of the movie. Oh, no. I Well, first of all, I know this okay. movie from watching it in film uh, school. For, re- mm-hmm. for a reason that, for a reason that we'll talk about uh okay. but yeah this movie starts off with the reddest shit you've ever seen <laughs> so when i walked in and i'm like you know red little red little girl gets the red background i'm like this is alice doesn't live here anymore <laughs> well like the background and they're like the sets from the wizard of oz where it's mm-hmm. like a farm but like there's like 10 feet of depth um and it has like you know names on a satin background like it just it looks like you're watching mildred pierce or something um, and knowing that Scorsese is like the great you know, lover of old Hollywood, it makes sense now. I don't know what in the world you think when you're watching this and he's like, you know, 28, 1974. Um, but it's a story about a woman whose husband dies and she and her son got to go figure out how to live their lives. And I knew in the back of my head somewhere, I think that it had inspired a TV sitcom, like it inspired the show Alice, which mm-hmm. was on for like a decade. And the spinoff um, Flow. And the spinoff flow. It's incredible. The fact that a movie of this size and shape became spinoff property and was like IP of the 70s is one of many reasons that the 70s, that the Hollywood of the 70s, like, doesn't resemble the one we have now at all. (laughs) Because it's like, it's not a gentle movie exactly because it's like, it's funny and it's weird and it's got Jodie Foster as like the most juvenile delinquent kid you've ever seen in your life. Like, so many kids doing things that now as parents would be completely unimaginable. And you've got Alice, the Ellen Burson character, who's like doing her best as a mom, but like kind of fucks up from time to time and yells at her kid and like 
jokes around with him and then kind of takes it too far and like her kid's really annoying so it's not like you even blame her for getting mad at him all the time and then she meets Chris Christopherson who's supposed to be like the hunky love interest and he spanks the kid and you're like oh well he hit the kid I guess it's over but it's not but it's the 70s Um, but it's so lived in Ellen Burstyn is amazing in this movie she won best actress for it Mm -hmm. a lot of the movies improvise and you can really feel that energy in there where she's like kind of doubling back on her lines and talking over herself and laughing and you know moving her hair around it's such an incredible performance diane ladd shows up kind of in the second hour as flo who so she was on the show alice but she didn't play flo flo was played by somebody else i got a whole alice deep dive i gotta do right yeah Um, with go time to go brush off those vhs's of alice (laughs) which i've never seen a minute of um it just really like kind of blew me away and like you can see scorsese in there in some moments of it but it's you know it's nothing like goodfellas it's nothing like the wolf of wall street um and the whole thing about scorsese is i think you know people younger than us often are being like ah that guy he makes mob movies about men and people are like but you're gonna watch this movie but i watch this movie and i'm like to write off scorsese as someone who like doesn't care about women's stories or can't make a smaller or more intimate movie like it's all right there so early in his career uh and more people should watch it it's it's such a gem yeah this is a movie that um you know oscillates between being quiet and sad and loud and funny and loud and sad and then quiet and funny (laughs) sort of like back and forth and back and forth and uh the thing that we sort of uh, we're told in film school when we first watched it, it was my first experience with it, was just like, look how active the filmmaking is. So uh-huh. you're, it's like uh, the the camera and the space between the edits eventually slow down as we start to ramp down in the movie in the third act. But like those the first two acts, um, the camera's very frequently in motion. Uh, it, you know, crosses lots of lines from like shooting through uh, window reflection uh, like around to the side when they're driving to and end up in phoenix uh there's that whole um musical number she does to try out to be a singer where the camera is so focused on her but also never really stops to just it like let her around the entire bar yeah yeah it's such a a visually active movie uh that gets uh certain things across visually and then allows the character to sort of stew with it. When the husband dies, that's like he's driving a Coke truck and has a horrible crash. And there's like this piece of glass that is angled up. And it's just in a really brief aside. No one's like your husband died. It gets a phone call. We cut to the aftermath of the crash. And that feels incredibly Scorsese um, in in its space, Uh, which is like that's all pre-story. We're getting to the road movie that eventually gets stopped off in Phoenix. And um, yeah, once it does, I could just watch uh, Ellen Birdson trying to uh, keep her light together for uh, multiple hours, which is why the TV series sort of makes sense to me. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. Like you get to that restaurant and the guy who's Mel plays him on the show. He's got that like weird hat. Um, and like there's the three waitresses and one of them is like scrawny and seems silent but then like you'll have these great emotional scenes between her and Diane Ladd and then you just cut to the other woman like struggling to keep up yeah, with yeah. this like propping the door closed <laughs> and like people are pouring things on her it's so funny and it doesn't undercut the emotion of the other scene that's in there I think watching that in film school is such a fascinating idea because it's such a simple story and like 
so often you're like, well, the camera has to move to get this part of it. And it's like, no, there's a million ways to use the camera in a story that's about people talking in rooms. I mean, Oppenheimer, again, is like more evidence of that. And so you see her practicing the piano and then the camera tracks out the window and you see her son and you focus on him kicking rocks and like you get so much of both of their characters and what her trying to be a musician means to him entirely through camera, not through dialogue. And that's such a great at like distilling the essence of what camera can do to mm-hmm. see in film school like that. There's uh, also so many scenes uh, that just end with now Ellen Bernstein needs to get out of this room. And <laughs> I love it. Sometimes she has to pack. Sometimes she just stumbles. Sometimes she's having like an emotional break and can't get all the way out of the room. She could just get to a little <laughs> corner. And it's just like that. It, that. That. If you read it on the page or if you watch the movie the first time, you don't think that's going to be something that sticks in your head. But just like there's some sort of weird alchemy of this movie that I think makes it really enjoyable. But I also get why people don't say it's a stone cold classic, even though it is, is because yeah. it balances all these tones in a way that feels complete when it's done. Like when the movie's over, yes. you're like, I know what I watched there. And like, I'm glad mm-hmm. that worked out for her. And Chris Christopherson really had a moment where he was like, being in Scorsese movies and hugging Sinead O'Connor, it's like we gotta, we gotta, you know. There's a whole pre-blade man at all costs. A whole pre-blade Chris Christopherson that I had to learn about after, uh, during film school. So like, yeah, I I really enjoyed this movie as uh, I would even say even like as a fun watch. Uh, there's oh some, yeah, there's it's some definitely extreme fun. stuff in there. Harvey Keitel can never trust a Harvey Keitel character. No, absolutely. Do do not trust him for one second. Yeah, there's definitely like. You know, you feel the the danger that this woman is facing alone with her son. And like, I don't ever think you you don't ever really feel like the son is in peril. Like if that's a really topic. Right. If the sensitive topic for people. But he honestly, gets spanked, like, but like by that point in the movie, you're like, I want to spank that kid. By like, yeah, that kid, he's he sucks. But he's also like, I have, I have a lot of feelings about kid actors and like, you know, less about their performances and more like I don't think children need to be on movie sets. But this mm-hmm. kid like kind of feels like a rambunctious kid like yeah i kind of hope he just like went back to his life after this movie i don't know that when they have for kid actors was any better in the 70s when they have the water fight it's like one of the most mm-hmm. charming things in the movie where it's just like yeah. they, they're together and they're gonna face the world together um even though what you're supposed to basically be getting out of that is alice is you know still clinging to her various different who should she serve her husband dies and suddenly she's set in a situation where she could serve herself she could serve her kid and so her first thing's like, let's go to Monterey. I'm going to become a singer. Like, no one's going to keep me down anymore. And then as the movie goes on, she realizes there's a way to serve what she actually needs instead of what she thinks she needs mm-hmm. while also being a mother. Uh, and I think that's very sweet. It's a very yeah, it's not- 70s definition of mother, but still. Mother. Yeah. And it's not about someone trying to have it all. Like, it's, you know, if you make this movie now, I don't think she can end with a man. Like, I don't think that's what you want from it but it kind of convinced like walks you up to that at that point but like the final shot of the movie is not about her finding a new man it's about her and her son and her dreams Mm -hmm. and that's a really incredible thing to pull off again just through camera like it's not in not in the script at all yeah i also looked it up the the guy who plays the kid he was in the bad news bears and did a little bit of acting in the 70s and he got a and he got a um a master's from stanford in the 80s and founded a um, tech consulting company in the late 80s um so he did fine good for you alfred letter i'm happy for you i was tommy and alice doesn't live here anymore (laughs) 
Shut up and tell now me how to run my media I'm company. Rich. Um, I mean, I guess Alice doesn't live here anymore. Isn't on the Criterion Channel anymore uh, because I watched it because it was leaving. Um, but I'm sure it is viewable in all kinds of different ways. Um, that's really De- good. People definitely should, worth the digital it. rental if you don't want to pay to go to a theater. It is. Uh, I I don't think you would uh, regret it, listener. Yeah, I can't decide if now I want to do. Uh, more Scorsese's to try to complete that or watch more Best Actress winners from the 70s, which I have not seen all that many of. I mean, the answer is why not both? But, you know, there's only I, so much time. I went through like a weird series where I saw um, Wild at Heart uh, in a theater because I did a repertory screening near here, which is great because Wild at Heart is apparently hard to get uh, yeah. like actual disc. So I saw Wild at Heart. And then that motivated me to uh, listen to Diane Ladd's and Laura Dern's audiobook, uh, where Ooh. they they wrote a book about converse. Well, they wrote a book by having conversations while Diane Ladd was taking um, walks with uh, her daughter to overcome like lung disease. They go into it in the book. I don't have to be too detailed about it. But then the fantastic thing is they wrote the book by recording conversations, transcribing those conversations, and then they both do the audiobook. <laughs> so it's basically like a little play or like hearing the actual conversations and it was charming as all fuck. And then Alice doesn't live here anymore. Popped up like two days after I finished the audiobook, And I'm like, maybe I need to watch more Diane Ladd movies. Man, Diane, I have seen Rambling Rose, um, which they were in together and both got Oscar nominations for in the early 90s. That's a strange movie, um, but very good for Laura Dern. Uh, Diane Ladd completism. Yeah, man. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Check it out. Go watch it. So last week, Katie was not around to help us review Barbie. You might have noticed we mentioned it a lot. Because uh, you guys felt really uncomfortable talking about Barbie, which I don't think you should have. I mean, uh, you know, we just wanted to make sure everybody knew that we uh, were, were not the, per- the when you watch Barbie, you probably don't think what are the fighting in the war room dudes think about it. Maybe you do, which is fine. <laughs> but I want to hear what you thought about Barbie, especially now that I know you've listened to what we had to say about Barbie. So, Katie, how was Barbie for you? Uh, I had a great time at Barbie. I went to see it in a group of uh, people all wearing pink on Thursday night of opening weekend. Uh, there were other people all wearing pink. I mean, this became like the standard thing. But that Thursday night, I think we were kind of like, are people going to come? Is like going to be a whole thing? Um, and it absolutely was. And it continues to be. Um, I mean, I think you guys all pretty much said what I would have said about Barbie. Like, I think the middle section where um, Will Ferrell shows up is not necessarily the strongest. It was David. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about Barbie. It was David throwing out the cockamamie theory that Will Ferrell should be in Oppenheimer and Robert Downey Jr. should be in Barbie yes, and switch yes, roles. Yes. Um, I don't think that's it would ruin Oppenheimer because I think Robert Downey Jr. is really good at it. But I don't think that's wrong. I also think you could just cut out that character entirely. Um, I do think you guys didn't give enough uh, credit to Margot Robbie because like R- Ryan Gosling has to show her your part. He's like getting all the attention, but I think she's really great in it. I think she has a lot of moments to do really subtle stuff and then kind of the big dramatic stuff with depression Barbie. But even in that like 
the scene where she's confronted by all the angry tweens and like the heartbreak on her face. Like she's like, you know, her performance in Babylon was so big to the point that I kind of like felt like it was a detriment to the movie, although I don't hold it against her. And she's so perfectly in sync with this movie and kind of naturally, I guess she's the producer and kind of the guiding force behind it. Um, yeah, I feel like you guys didn't give her enough credit for for how much she holds the whole thing together. Mm. But otherwise, you guys nailed it. I didn't really like her performance, but I do think it only really becomes a performance in the back half of the movie. So maybe it's like when she gets yelled at by well, little girls. Well, it's a girls. performance the whole time. Like to be that like simple, cheerful Barbie is a difficult performance. We, yeah, yes. But in the first half of the movie, it's a maybe difficult performance that I'm watching a dozen other women do as well. Okay. All right. I, I mean, I, 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 look, here's the thing. I'm not saying Margot Robbie is not super talented and like makes these performances feel as natural as, you know, I liked overactive Babylon. I didn't like what Babylon was saying about that character, but I liked the portrayal of that character a lot, especially in her uh, ascension uh, more than her decline. Uh, yeah, I mean, that she, sequence, that that like first day on set sequence where she's crying on command is unbelievable. She wasn't bad in Amsterdam, even though that movie was bad around her. I didn't she know you saw Amsterdam. is great as Harley Quinn, even though those movies kind of, you know, come and go. I'm still very sad that we're going to look back on Birds of Prey as a failure, even though I think it got pandemic snared and didn't have a chance. Uh, so, like, I, I didn't want to say, like, I'm down talking Margot Robbie. I'm just saying the performance didn't become evident for me until the mm-hmm. back hat, the self-discovery part of the movie, probably because yeah. she's playing a Barbie and the definition of Barbie character is elastic, but positive uh, in the first half of that movie, which sure. is just, there's not a lot to play around it in there. Well, but you get all those like glimmers of reality intruding in on her. And I think that's what's really interesting, like the scene where she's sitting on the the, the bus stop bench and she's. Opposite Anne Roth, Oscar-winning costume designer as the old woman, which is amazing. Um, just what she, what her face is able to capture, that like the uncertainty and the discovery and the excitement and the terror of what she's experiencing. I think that's all there. I do like that the stranger, uh, the Anne Roth stranger, responds to her with a smile. And uh, I know. And she was, knows how beautiful she is. It's amazing. Yeah, it's all right, one other thing, because we can't keep this many because she did this last week. I mean, David was, I think it was David. I don't want to be too hard on David. I'm just talking about the America Ferrera speech and how it kind of felt like, you know, Obama era feminism, uh, you know, getting past the girl boss thing into, you know, questioning the idea that women can have it all. And like, I agree that there was nothing in that speech that was especially new to me, but this movie is going to make a billion dollars worldwide and is going to reach a lot of people who have not had these conversations. And I think discounting it because you feel like you're too hip for it or it's hitting things that are too familiar, but true it's kind of missing the point. Like, I, I think it, it I think it serves a much bigger purpose than that. I mean, uh, the good thing about this movie is it allows pop culture to let somebody who isn't going to have that conversation in their life start that conversation. Mm-hmm. Like in 1999, I was like, which one of you fuckers want to start a fight club with me? Like someone had to have the feminism conversation <laughs> with Dave over several months, maybe even years of slowly irking him into, you know, what equality actually means. Uh, across genders and sexes i think that this is fine i think i said on the show that it's going to be you know used for like high school theater auditions and i think that's great like that's where it should be um it's it's not trying to be uh something that's difficult it's not a top spinning at the end of interstellar you're not supposed to inception inception thank you 
<laughs> what is what spins at the end of it is stellar three fourth dimensional bookcases <laughs> um but it's not anything like that where you're supposed to go home and try to think and try to out like you should be nodding along with what she's saying when she's saying it yeah. or it should be the female driven climax uh, for this movie because this movie I, I think i said this last on last week but it climaxes with the kens ken's dream ballet that's the traditional climax point of the movie the Barbie's climax is them realizing they could unbrainwash each other by using mm -hmm. logic. Uh, and I think it hits um, much clearer than the stuff, the dream ballet stuff with Ken. Um, the, the, what Ken's ultimate purpose is at the end of this movie is much fuzzier than what you get with the, the Barbie. His ultimate purpose is to find purpose, which yeah. is very fuzzy. <laughs> it's like, guess what, guys? Keep going. Your answer, your answer wasn't in Barbie, but maybe it'll be well, in Aquaman too. Well, that's the women too being like, "Well, you don't like you. You can't have it all, but you want to have something, and you want a shirt that fits, but doesn't really exist." So, good luck, guys. Like, yep. The the I mean, I don't want to say the politics of the movie are a mess because I don't think it's trying to have politics. Like this movie's not going to solve feminism. Like the the answer is Barbie is everything, and so the movie kind of has to be everything, and therefore can't really settle on anything there. And like I. So I'm, I want to see the movie a second time. I, I can imagine that feeling frustrated, frustrating on a second viewing, but I kind of refuse to hold it against the movie. They successfully pulled off a new Coke, which is that the brand is different now. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what the movie did amazingly. We'll probably mm -hmm. look. I was listening to a uh, ringer podcast called The Town. Uh, it was about like the business. And they were like, you know, uh, one of the hosts was like, we're probably going to look back on Barbie as like a classic of this era. Mm -hmm. that's it the brands have been changed what happens moving forward with it uh with future kids who want to play with toys or with you know uh elder millennials who want to you know watch it and uh outdoor screenings during the summer like and wear pink again and recapture this this moment <laughs> in theaters again uh i think it's going to be all of those things and that is incredibly hard to do simultaneously with a movie and a brand uh, to the extent that I'm not sure it's happened before, uh, where a, a piece of pop culture that could have just been like a commercial actually allows it to pivot, allows the yeah. entire brand to pivot into something else. Uh, they, yeah. they did that all without selling a single Barbie, technically. Yeah. I mean, you say it's like capturing a specific time, so maybe that's where the feminism lands, as we're in this like post-Me Too, post-Girl Boss period they, of intersectional feminism being like i don't know man like how do we i don't know how to fix this anymore they build that into the end of the movie where mm -hmm. you know creator says they the older women stay where they are so that future generations can look back and see how far they've came so mm -hmm. i think it's, it's it's really been great to see it perform i can't wait to see what we think about barbie uh in the future because uh we're still pretty close to it opening, but it really feels, you know, like, you know, Matrix level to go back to 1999, where it's just like, this is something, something's different now. Let's find out what it is. Is it, the, is it the most important piece of millennial or elder millennial art? I think I want to be narrow. Like Greta Gerwig, I think we would both agree as like the most important filmmaker in our age group by far mm -hmm. like she's she's it um is it the most important like elder millennial story i mean 
that's the kind of hyperbole where if I'm going off of my feelings, <laughs> I say yes. But then in reality, it's like, maybe we'll see what happens by the end of this year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just doubled by the fact that I didn't see it coming. Like, pe mm -hmm. people, people are like, Barbie's going to be good. I'm like, yeah, we'll see, man. I like little women, you know, <laughs> like, know. let's let's roll the dice. I didn't mind Super Mario Brothers movie either. It's like, yeah, go brands. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, completely different uh, than I was expecting and very surprising and a yeah. weird little movie that I hope everybody sees. It's certainly Greta Gerwig's third best movie as a solo director, um, but Lady Bird is one of the best movies of all time. So I'm not taking that as a... Uh as a diss oh now it's like reverse hyperbole maybe barbie is her best movie we don't know <laughs> it's maybe the most important movie i'd like the, the elder millennial canon i'm gonna spend a, spend a while thinking about this i think if, if, if this podcast is good for anything it's good for talking about the voice of elder millennials <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> yeah we got to figure out what our elder millennial canon is maybe that's, maybe a, that's a podcast the project quill? Mm, Ooh, yeah we get to decide it while everyone else is gone <laughs> guess what while you were gone taking care of your children <laughs> katie and i got shit done So last week we talked a little bit about the Haunted Mansion, uh, but now that Katie's back and has uh, children that might be more in the age group of maybe seeing Haunted Mansion, I want to revisit... I do have one child who says he wants to see Haunted Mansion. We'll see. We, yes. we haven't gotten there yet. I want to uh, revisit that, uh, this movie as a way sort of, uh, well, well, let me just get out with it. Haunted Mansion, don't think it's that good. Not bad, but it is a very confused movie about what its target audience is and who it wants to be. I've heard uh, reviews from people that I respect being like it is a movie about uh, grief uh, with a black uh, group of characters sort of at its center. And um, it is also fun and full of Haunted Mansion Easter eggs. Uh, I think it's all those things. I do think it's a really weird line to ride to make a grief movie for children <laughs> where there's a child dealing with uh, a death and there's also uh, our main character played by Lakeith Stanfield uh, dealing with a death. Um, most... Is Lakeith Stanfield the dad of the child? No. Oh, okay. So we've seen the off... trailer. Oh, Rosario Dawson's the mom. Yeah, Rosario Dawson's the okay. mom. The kid, I believe his name is Terry. He's like nine. Uh, they find this house on Zillow, paid promotion, and uh, they move into the house first two minutes they're there they realize it's haunted get the f out of the house then we cut to a really interesting montage of new orleans very place-based very uh based on the reality of new orleans um and we meet lakeith stanfield who is a depressed gentleman leading a ghost tour but he does not believe in ghosts okay. um and we learn that uh the reason he's re leading this ghost tour and he doesn't believe in ghosts is because he was an astrophysicist who okay. fell, fell in love with a woman running a ghost tour. Mm -hmm. So he... Um, There's a lot going on already. I'm just going to say this. Yes. 
he develops for her a lens that you could put on a camera that can take pictures of ghost ghost particles. Sure. Uh, because he's an astrophysicist. Not ghost protocol, ghost particles. Ghost particles. <laughs> and proposes to this woman. And they have a, you know, relationship. She is not alive by the time the movie starts. We learn all of this from flashbacks. Okay. Uh, but he is sort of depressed because he's been stuck running this ghost tour life. He's never really recovered from the death of his wife in a car crash. She was going to get tater tots from Burger King paid oh product God. placement when she decided oh she wanted to get some Baskin Robbins paid Does product Burger placement. Does Burger King have tater tots? Yes, they do. Cheesy oh, tots. Okay. They bring them back, they let them go away, but uh, that's, a, that's a big part. Uh, but more importantly, they also shout out the jalapeno poppers, which Burger mm. King has. Anyway, there's this monologue about how he misses his wife and how his wife died going for these branded products. And Lakeith mm -hmm. Stanfield's giving it like a he's tearing up thing. But we're like sitting around and listening to him. We're like Owen Wilson and Danny DeVito wearing like a raincoat. And I'm like, what are you, movie? <laughs> so that all happens. Uh, they um, uh, 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 Rosario Dawson and her son uh, find uh, Owen Wilson who uh, was, they think is a priest, but he's actually a guy in a priest costume because it oh lets him get away with things. Uh, this is to, so complicated. Yes, I'm not even, and I'm not even through the first 30 minutes, I don't think. <laughs> uh, gets Owen Wilson to come do an exorcism. That doesn't work. Owen Wilson finds Lakeith Stanfield because he's heard about the ghost lens. And so he wants to go get some pictures of these ghosts. Lakeith Stanfield... Uh, shows up because they pay him like $2,000 to show up because he's like totally not into it. He doesn't even really take any pictures because he's out of battery so he just makes a clicking sound and then says, oh, didn't find anything. Goes okay. back home and finally we're doing some Haunted Mansion lore. Have you ever been on the ride, Katie? It's been a long time, but okay. I'm vaguely familiar, yes. So you know that part of the ride where it spins and you can see the ghost sitting next to you in, on in the, your chair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the the ghost host is like, they might even go home with you. Yeah. So the premise is once you've entered the haunted mansion and they decide to haunt you, they will follow you to any location and bring you uh, back to the haunted mansion. Okay. So as they go on, they try to figure out what's going on. What do these ghosts want? They absorb other cast members and uncover Jamie Lee Curtis's Madame Leota until finally everybody's running around this house and it turns out all the ghosts are actually scared of this big ghost named the Hatbox Ghost played oh, by Jared Leto. I do remember that Jared Leto is the Hatbox Ghost. Yeah. And of course he, he is. Of course he is. He needs one more soul in order uh, to, I guess, come back to life. Uh, but he's been uh, killing people at this house uh, for years and years and years, uh, including the original um, owners, I believe. Uh, so he's like a ghost that's haunting the ghosts. He needs one more soul, but the uh, two twists that happen oh to make this movie longer okay. is uh, one, Madame Leota says in order to like banish the hatbox ghost, they need something that was his in life. So uh, Owen Wilson, Lakeith Stanfield, and the child have to go to a second haunted mansion to find a secret <laughs> graveyard where the hatbox ghost has been burying his victims, but also his hat's still there. Sure. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> and then uh, the other thing is it's revealed to some people, but not all people, 
that the hatbox ghosts his final sacrifice has to be willing so he's been pulling at lakeith stanfield because he thinks lakeith stanfield has Mike no wife has die. no yeah reason to live wouldn't now that he knows ghosts are real doesn't he want to see his wife again is essentially the pull from that okay but then and i'm going to spoil this because i don't mm -hmm. know why the movie keeps it a secret but the little boy's dad died and in some time okay. sometime halfway through the movie you sort of get distracted by that because he's like my dad i've been talking to my dad and he says he wants me to come visit so you think oh maybe it was like a contentious divorce but like no the kid's getting lured by the hatbox ghost so lakeith stanfield has to convince oh. himself he doesn't want to die and a little kid that he doesn't want to die and oh, I, again I'm, again i'm like who is this movie for um this and that's is dark there's a, a climax with a bunch of jokey ghosts and uh, owen wilson convincing them they could be good ghosts and they should fight alongside the living uh it is a whole bunch of malarkey. Um, they don't need to make a sequel. That's fine. Um, some so good why things... is it so messy? Is it just a bad script? I. It feels like it's just too much script. Like I would almost say mm -hmm. it's like if you tell this story about this one Rosario Dawson and then um, her child find Lakeith Stanfield and maybe have the Owen Wilson priest. Mm -hmm. that's like enough but there's like a trisha helfer no not trisha helfer is from battlestar galactica um buh, 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 buh. there's a oh, tiffany, tiffany haddish. haddish tiffany haddish uh, medium character there's a dandy devito character who like knows mm -hmm. the history of the house and jamie lee curtis is in there somewhere jamie lee curtis is madame leota they're all Who's, treated yeah. so, sort of like their main characters so we uh -huh. get the backstory of all of them sort of paced out throughout the movie as they're running around CGI hallways, some of the most like visually disorienting action I've seen in, <laughs> in a while. So I think Justin Simeon and Katie Dippold, who wrote the script, really did a good job of anchoring it in New Orleans, mm -hmm. populating uh, a non-white cast with interesting characters, and then I feel like it had to have gotten noted to death. Some things yeah. had to get softer, so Danny DeVito has to show up and yell and roll around. Mm -hmm. uh, Tiffany Haddish has to do more of her Tiffany Haddish thing so how does that affect the story and I think it just got overstuffed uh, by studio notes and then like all the brand all the brand integration is very distracting and then finally Jared Leto is uh, unrecognizable as Jared Leto for 90% of the movie he's a CG creation of a hatbox ghost well, that's what he likes to do yeah I just why pay him to do it at that point I don't know if he was doing any performance thing that couldn't have been later CGI'd over of just another actor who was doing yeah. a, a spooky voice. Uh, yeah. And then there's like, there's 999 ghosts, but like we sort of don't have time for them. So there's only two that we really investigate. Uh, there's uh, William Gracie, who the Disneyland version of the ride is the Gracie Manor. So that makes sense. They keep it here. And then there's the sea captain. Which is sure. I mean, it's just a weird, obscure ghost to pick out of the 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 thing to give like a backstory. Like the sea captain gets an ending in this movie after they defeated the hatbox ghost, they release him back out into sea, and I'm like, that's the one <laughs> out of all 999 ghosts. Some of which had like maybe relatable things, you know. Some of which were like killed by slaves or murdered slaves themselves. It's like, couldn't you have culturally embraced this a little bit? 
why is there a fucking sea captain here? Uh, so <laughs> it's a it's an odd little duck of a film. I would not uh, go see it in theaters, but if you have Disney Plus when it jumps on, I'm sure in like six weeks, uh, maybe give it a shot. It does have some very fun uh, Haunted Mansion Easter eggs if you uh, like it. For instance, there's one that involves product placement, but also an excellent little bit of Haunted Mansion lore. When they're about to do a seance, Cesario Dawson says that they only have Yankee Candle vanilla scented candles because she keeps forgetting to cancel her Amazon subscription. Wow. Which is a bunch, you know, a bunch of product. But Mm -hmm. uh, they did used to pump, I don't know if they still do, they did used to scent certain Disney indoor rides to provide a better experience, and the Haunted Mansion was vanilla. So it's like somebody obviously knew what they were doing. It's just (laughs) as it goes through layers of production, it becomes you don't realize that until you get through all the product placement. And that's a lot how this movie feels. That plus, like, if or do I care about the guy whose wife died or the kid whose dad died? It really is trying to make me equate those as the same thing. And I don't I don't think they are. Uh, But, you know. How deep was the Haunted Mansion supposed to go? Uh, Nobody knows. Certainly not the people who made the Haunted Mansion, I don't think. So I guess the fact that like Mission Impossible 7, or 7 is one we're on, Mm -hmm. um, is struggling should have told me that like the Barbenheimer tie like can't do, can only do so much. Like people are going to go see those two movies and not necessarily going to like run out to go see something else. But I kind of did wonder if Haunted Mansion would get some of that bump. Like people are in theaters being like, Hey, let's go see this other one. Do you like, do you think if it had been good, it could have gotten any of that boost or is like, is I mean, the being good would always help. I'm not replicable. I, I would have pushed it to towards October. Um, sure. Because like it is getting trampled right now to the degree that, like it might have a bigger drop between its first week and its second week than Elemental does between its eighth week and its ninth week, you know? Yeah. Like the the kid, it's not a four quadrant movie. It's not performing as a four quadrant movie. Um, I think it might have maybe inched close to Barbenheimer, thinking that like they're they're gonna want some fun after that and just misestimated Barbie entirely. Sure. Well, ever everyone did. Right. Uh, but that being said, I like I'm, I am interested to see what happens in the coming weeks. Talk to me has been performing better than people so, were expecting. Yeah, it talk to. to me was where I started being like, oh, maybe this is a all tides, you know, like the tide raises all boats situation. I mean, it's a really uh, gory, fun time. It I know it seems like it could be like a Halloween movie, but it actually is. I think perfectly placed as like a summer spooky, uh, and it's a. Uh, Got good buzz out of Sundance, and then A24, who is not part of the AMPTP strike, uh, is putting it out. So I think it's got a lot of. One thing uh, it has a lot of non-sag actors in it too. Mm-hmm. Well, even if it does, they're in an A24 movie. SAG has waived A24 movies. I don't. Did SAG get a promotional waiver though, or did A24 uh, get a promotional waiver? I don't know. Uh, but that being said, I didn't see that much. Uh, talk to me promotion outside of just trailers and advertisements to begin with uh we'll have to see if that happens the next weeks if it begins to grow but like uh where i really wish that barbenheimer didn't happen and where basically sag was about to go on strike the amptp artificially got a two-week extension not because they were going to get a deal but so they could send out the barbie and oppenheimer casts to preload <laughs> all of this publicity 
pretty much uh, that that like that really fogs it because I don't it's hard for me to say if I first of all I'm thrilled that we're having the most successful box office weeks ever I think we could finally say the pandemic is over you know like I know we yeah. said it on the podcast a couple weeks ago but theatrically now we're back the issues we we're having at the we hope we hope this I, is not just a one-off or right. two-off I mean, even if it's a two-off, have some more one-offs. Like, that's also sure. fine. Sure. Uh, the fact that Barbie, you know, stepped in for uh, Top Gun Maverick, that's, like, insane. But they're doing similar arcs right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, like, one, one for dude bros and one for uh, feminists of all genders. Uh, <laughs> so, I don't, like, it's hard to say what that would be in the future. I am really kind of eyeing... Uh, God, probably nothing this month. Like, I'm wondering if they could hold this over into the fall. Uh, if, like, we're getting a little bit of summer blockbuster season uh, back-weighted with uh, Barbenheimer, but then people are still going to be like, oh, maybe I'll go to the movies again. I'm hoping people have been encouraged to go back to the movies again. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, it- if Ninja Turtles is going to do really well. Like, this is very anecdotal, but, like, I was getting tickets for the Alamo Draft House showing on Saturday at noon, and it was almost entirely full. And like it's been I love a that. while since I tried to buy tickets like that. Turtles has got some good pieces. It's um, but oh, we'll get there. We're talking about it next week. Yeah, we'll get, get to it next week. But I mean, it has a lot of good pieces that thus far have been performing well. Its animation style is very Spider Verse adjacent, mm-hmm. and Spider Verse uh, did well. I think something that it has over Spider Verse is it is like an hour and a half, and Spider Verse <laughs> is the longest animated movie ever released. Real long. <laughs> Um, Elemental still seems to have legs, so there is a mm-hmm. audience out there for the four quadrant people. We are still going to the movies, uh, mm-hmm. so if Turtles could hook into that, that would be great. Uh, and then also, it is the perfect type of movie to only have the directors and the producers capable of talking about yeah. it, <laughs> uh, because it's like all unknowns, like a whole bunch of stacked voice cast, but you're going to recognize their voices immediately, and they don't yeah. need to do production for it. Uh, they have all the clips. So uh, turtles like that could have like a strike era alchemy that keeps it going. Yeah. But I, I, I do think it's lightning. Uh, the, the thing that makes it sort of feel like lightning in a bottle is uh, the sort of things that are projects the studio is now floating. Uh, they're like, oh, Barbenheimer did well. Let's get a Lena Dunham Polly Pocket movie. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> you guys don't know nope. fucking anything. You guys don't know anything. <laughs> It's like, I, uh, so I'm not encouraged by that, um, which means I'm also not encouraged by uh, studios trying to starve out uh, the strikes by moving the actual good movies into 2024, uh, which is starting to feel like it's going to happen. But eyes, eyes on Dune 2. Dune 2 could be big. Unless they move it to 2024. Unless they move it to 2024, in which case the Marvels will suck up their IMAX screens immediately because the Marvels ain't moving. <sighs> Well, um, here's the uh, here's the question that I think we should have on next week or the week after is I really want to know your take on whether the superhero movie genre is in real trouble after the summer. Oh, you think the superhero movie genre is in trouble after the summer? Don't you don't think so? You don't think based on like the responses for The Flash and Ant-Man and anything that's not Spider-Man? I think uh, it depends whether you're 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 basing it on. Uh, performs up to expectations or is actually successful because 
Quantumania Guardians, they're like in the top 15 box sure. office grossers of this year. Um, but like, you, do you really think Quantumania performed at the level that a Marvel... I mean, Qu- Guardians obviously a success, but also the end of that franchise as far as anyone knows for now. Right, which really, really helped it. And then Secret Invasion uh, was not good. I don't know if it, you caught <laughs> any of that. No, absolutely uh, not. It was not good, and it cost somewhere, they estimate, around $212 million. So That is bananas. Yep. Uh, I think uh, Marvel's in like a wobble, but uh, they did release the uh, Loki Season 2 trailer yesterday, and it sure. broke records for streaming for Disney+. Plus. So, like, you can't count Marvel out. All I know is that the Marvels is doesn't feel like it's going to move because it is a step uh, towards the future because Marvel's serialized. It's a step towards whatever the future Marvel is. They would like to get to that future as fast as possible because whatever they're doing right now isn't working as well as it used to. And uh, there's a I, I'm having an internal debate with myself about whether they would actually be able to better market the, Mar- the Marvels without people trolling Brie Larson on every single outlet oh. that she goes on to. Like, the, well, the, if she's not going to be out there doing promo, maybe that helps. Yeah. Like, uh, they have Iman Vellani who plays Miss Marvel. She's, uh, writing a new Miss Marvel comic, uh, for, uh, Marvel comics. Uh, they're going to put Miss Marvel on ABC to sort of like lead into it. I think they can market it and, uh, not have to push it back. And more importantly, not have to push the product back in a way that there isn't Marvel product over Christmas, which honestly is important still. Uh, so yeah, I, I think Marvels will stick. Everything else, though, I'm I'm looking for it to. Or Marvels will stick, and I also feel like Killers of the Flower Moon will stick. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't think that many movies that aren't giant like Dune size movies are going to move. But my bet would be I would bet against Marvels personally. But you think so? Yeah, I don't know. I just I just feel like the enthusiasm is waning and. You get well, something that like Barbenheimer that, that that shows people that like there's something new can happen, mm-hmm. and is, but this is ahead. my personal bias speaking. Well, but it's like it's it's done. Like when is this gonna? When is it gonna be better if you don't put out more Marvel product to make it better? You know, just do something that isn't Marvel. Like just like more people are gonna say, ah, I can skip those. I'm gonna go watch something else. Oh, I mean, like that might be possible audience wise. I don't know if that is. You know what Marvel's hurt. supposed to do. I don't I, I just think there's uh it's a bigger risk to push the Marvels because then you have such a theatrical gap. Between... Oh, I don't think they'll push the Marvels. I agree. Oh, 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 you were saying oh, sorry. No, yeah, sorry. I'm betting against the Marvel. Marvels being good. Got it. Got it. Yeah, who knows about that? I've I've heard things <laughs> on both sides, but also I've heard things pre reshoots and post reshoots, so who knows? But I think you could put uh, Kevin Feige and Nina, De- Nina DaCosta out and they could promote that movie without any stars and it would do as well as it did if you that's did true. the full thing. Because that's the kind of people, that's the kind of interaction the fandom has uh, with these type of movies. Uh, but yeah, who knows? It would be nice know. if the strike would end. If the producers would get their shit together and mm-hmm. make a fair deal. I would like that. It would. That would be uh, great. I would also like that because then, you know... <laughs> And I'd get to see Dune 2 because it's yeah, done. And then people would be getting fa- paid fairly and we'd all get to see Dune 2. It's, and that, like, I've been thinking about uh, 
the Oscars and like it's, I mean, the strike will be over before the Oscars, God willing. But like, do you know, don't you want to see Ryan Gosling and Simu Liu perform at the Oscars? Like, you monsters, don't keep this from us. <laughs> don't make uh, Warner Brothers. No, I guess Warner Brothers couldn't make a special just of Simu Liu and Ryan Gosling at this point. Nah, so yeah, David Z- David Zaslav doesn't have that power right now. <laughs> He's not going to pull that one off. Anyway, <sighs> box office uh, says uh, maybe unhaunted. But the Haunted Mansion definitely doesn't need one more ghost uh, if you want to give it a pass. That's that's this week's segment theory. Yeah. When hinges creak in doorless chambers and strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls, whenever candlelights flicker where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present Practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Some combination of us. Maybe just me and Dave again. Maybe we're resting control over the entire operation. The only um, hosts of Fighting in the War Room. There's never been any other hosts. Anybody who's I... been saying things on their X profile is lying. <laughs> I have bought tickets to Ninja Turtles, so we'll talk about that next week. I'm looking forward to it. Ooh, yeah. um, have you heard the Have you heard the soundtrack yet, Katie? No. It's I've been listening to the Barbie soundtrack a lot. It's a Trent Reznor Atticus Ross joint that is the uh, oh. most the most yes. Nine Inch Nails soundtrack I've ever heard in my life. I know this because Michael, my husband, who doesn't go see movies and usually doesn't pay attention to this stuff, was like, "Hey, do you know the the track titles for the Ninja Turtles soundtrack?" And I was like, "No," uh, but apparently, it's a bunch of really silly. Uh, oh yeah, kill the Shreks better than Mark Ruffalo. Uh, a bunch uh, of dipshits on a roof. Yep. Uh, yeah, dipshits on a roof. Yeah. What's the what, worst? The, one track is called "What's the Worst That Could Happen," and the next one is called "The Worst That Could Happen." Yeah, a lot of it's taken from like things they say in the movie. But uh, I was surprised listening to the soundtrack. I was like, why isn't there a theme in here? Uh, the the theme is actually the song that's called "A Whole New Species." I think it's like track two. Okay. That is the that's the new turtles theme. It is not na 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 na. It's this weird glitchy nine inch nail <laughs> shit. It works fantastically. I can't wait to talk to you about it next week. And I'm gonna have <laughs> so I got my head for the rest of the night. So thank you. You're uh, do, would you like to tell people who you are? I am. I'm Dave Gonzalez. You could follow me on X uh, at da7e. You could follow me on Blue Sky at da7e. You could follow me. On the Meta Services, Instagram, and Threads at GrumpyDA70. Uh, you could email all of us at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com. You could go to our website, fightinginthewarroom.com. I would uh, make plentiful use of the search feature because we've been talking about things for so long. Uh, I bet you could find whatever you're looking for or uh, us at least mentioning it offhand. And uh, if you want to read my book that I did with Joanna Robinson and Gavin Edwards, uh, MCU, the reign of Marvel Studios. You could go to themcubook.com. That's it. That's all I'm going to plug this week. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Goldman podcast, where we're kicking off our book club for August uh, with Killers of the Flower Moon, which I mentioned earlier. I'm also, next one after that is Priscilla Presley's memoir, Elvis and Me, which is the basis of Sofia Coppola's movie. Uh, that is a read. I'm having a great time. Um, so <laughs> read along with us. Um, I'm on. We're still calling it Twitter. We're just going to call it Twitter, right? I mean, I call it X by going X. I'm still like using I'm disappointed. it. 
I'm sorry. I mean, okay, right, yeah, so do it, do it. You know what? I I don't care. Fuck you on must. Like, <laughs> do it. Do whatever you want. I don't yeah, care. I, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to police your your language, Katie. <laughs> uh, I am still tweeting at Katie Rich. I'm looking up who what my name on Threads because I don't remember it. Um, it's Katie Rich talking on Threads. I don't know. I still haven't figured out what to do with all of this, but at this point, people know where to find me. Um, we're all on Twitter. Still at FITWR, um, where you can give us your submissions for the Elder Millennial Canon, my new favorite topic, or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem being in theaters this week, what's the weirdest thing you would eat on a pizza? Bonus points if you make the pizza you're talking about. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. When you hear the bell, the wrecking bell, it goes to the ears as well. Restless bones, he's feeling high. Tries his throat, so happy his side is good. Bum-ba-dum, bitum, pum-dum. A pum-pum-dum, little gungula. Ba-bum-ba-bum-ba-bum. Now I'm done, I'm done, we're done.